Welcome to the Rock Community Church. Pastor John Warehouse is teaching from the book of Acts. Enjoy today's sermon. place in the Word of God, you won't be, uh, you won't be sad that you came. It's a, it's a place that talks about commitment. And um, we've, been talking about, uh, we've been talking about how the church is formulated and everything. And, and, and now we're seeing from the leadership, from the apostles, that there's a commitment in their lives. There's a, there's a, a loyalty unto the Lord that, that, that goes beyond anything that we can ever imagine or hope for something that we would like to emulate, something like we would like to become. And so that's where we are in the uh, fourth chapter. Now, if, uh, if there's anyone in here that got a hole-in-one this weekend, would they stand up? Oh, I guess, I guess that would be ridiculous. Ken? Ken? <laughs> I understand Ken Dabluski got a hole-in-one this weekend. Is that true? Hey, congratulations. Congratulations. The sound guys told me to get all over you about that, and so I thought I would. What the heck? Listen, this is such a wonderful place in the Word of God. Um, turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 4, and we'll read in a moment. Before we do, I'd like to make one announcement, if I may, and this is for the men here. Um, we have what we call MOB, M-O-B, Men of the Bible. We have our kickoff uh, coming July the 11th. That's in a couple of weeks. I'll remind you again next week. But if you have a tendency to write in your, uh, in your notebook or uh, if you have a calendar or something like that, that, that you can put this date aside at 6 o'clock in the evening. We're going to meet here at the church and we're going to have a, a barbecue. We're going to have kabasa, kabasa. I should know that. I'm from Croatia. Anyways, we have kabasa and we're going to have hamburgers and just stuff that guys like. And we're going to have a real lot of fun, uh, a bite to eat, and then we're going to go uh, do an overview of the book of Ephesians. Guys, we're going to be studying the, through the book of Ephesians through our small Bible study groups. And so it's a, a perfect time to join up. We're starting off in a new book. If you've not been a part, I, I cannot encourage you enough to be a part. It's, uh, the sad thing about it is that you'll never experience and know how important it is until you go. And until you go, it's one of those catch-22 things. And you'll feel like it's, it might, you might not have enough time or it's not for you. But the truth of the matter is, to feed on the Word of God, we need to do that more than just once a week. And guys, it's critical for us as men of this church to get involved and to, um, and to help grow in our faith and our trust and our, uh, our maturity unto the Lord. So there will be different times that you can meet, different hours, different days. And um, if you would come for the kickoff. On July the 11th, I'll remind you again next week, multi-purpose room here at the church at 6 o'clock in the evening. If nothing else, you're going to enjoy a lot of fun and uh, good food. So I pray that you'll do that. Here we are in Acts chapter 4. In verse 13, I, I, I got the nicest email this, this particular week. Um, someone wrote me, I, I won't mention who because I didn't get the permission to do so, but someone wrote to to say that they had been reading the Bible often in their lives, been through it a few times. Never have they come to Acts 4.13 and seen where it says they marveled that the apostles uh, had this uneducated man uh, and all of that untrained 
And yet they marveled at them having seen that they had spent time or having been with Jesus. And we made mention of that last week. And, and this person that wrote me said, you know, I've never seen that before. The very wonders of having spent time with Jesus Christ. That's the essence of, of what we are as a church. The whole purpose of our lives. I can think of nothing, I think, I can think of nothing finer than to, to live a life that allows someone to come up to you and say, you know, there's something different about you. And you can share with them. You know, it's, it's my faith. It's, it's that I have spent time in the Bible with my Lord. Um, I've had that uh, privilege a few times in my life to make mention that, um, you know, people have seen a change in, in my life and, and have an opportunity to say, well, it's, it's my faith and uh, I've spent time in the Bible getting to know my Lord. There's nothing greater than that. And so when Peter convicts the people of their sin, he does what any wonderful pastor would do, anybody that's speaking would do, and that is he gives them an opportunity to come to repentance. And we talked a little bit about verse 12 last week. This is just um, kind of an overview, and we'll, we'll read and pray in a moment. But he kind of, we talked a little bit about it last week, but verse 12 is a dynamite verse. Verse 12 says, there is salvation, he says, therefore, since you have sinned, you can repent. Your repentance is through Christ. And what he says is there's salvation, verse 12, and no one else, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, Peter is saying to them, All that you are doing within your religion, all that you are doing within your life, no matter how spiritual you are, he is saying to them their spirituality, their religion is worthless without Christ. He says nothing, nothing can be laid, nothing can be built upon your religion or your spirituality apart from Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given amongst us by which we must be saved. Paul says the same thing practically about can't build upon anything else but Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, would you turn there please? Oh wow, that is mag- what, what the guys do and our tech team is magnificent to me. These, yeah, give them a hand. It, it's... It's really, really nice. Those are the verses we're going to cover. I might not do First Peter. I don't know. We'll see how the time goes. But those are the verses we're going to cover concerning this message. And then they put the, the verse that we're going to right there so that in case you didn't hear me or it, it slipped you, you can see where we're going to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I was explaining, but I wasn't turning. Forgive me. Look at these words. Paul is trying to... Um, the, the whole book of Corinth, the, the book written to the Corinthians, is a book to help them understand and straighten out their theology. They've gotten on the wrong path. And Paul is trying to bring them back, and he's trying to uh, bring, uh, he's trying to bring a, 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 a unity into the body of Christ. They're kind of going their own way. Some said, well, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Peter. Some say, I even follow Christ. And Paul says, look in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So he says in verse 7, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Let me just stop there for a second. Folks, no matter what you and I do, it is nothing if Christ isn't in it with us. If he's not helping, if he's not the one that is the driving force behind whatever we're doing, whether it's parking cars, whether it's helping children, whether it's preaching a message, whether it's doing the tech, whether it's doing the music, if we're not doing it, allowing God to work and flow through us, allowing Him to get the glory, then it's nothing. It is absolutely nothing. And so Paul says to the people, look, whether it be Apollos, whether it be me, it doesn't matter. We water, we plant, but God causes the growth. So he says in verse 8, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it, but let each person be careful how he builds on it. Verse 10, important verse. Remember we were saying, we have been saying over and over again, the church was set up by the apostles. The Lord God gave them orders how that we are to conduct ourselves within these four walls. How we're to have church. And church isn't that uh, complicated, really. Church is simply, well, we studied it. In, in Acts uh, chapter 2, it says, I want you to be continually devoted. Once he got the 3,000 people that accepted Christ at his first message, he says, I want you to be continually devoted to the things of God. And then he told them what they are to be continually devoted to. The teaching of the apostles fellowship with one another, communion so as not to have divisions, and prayer. So that's what church is really all about. And so what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians is, look, we've laid a foundation and can't be laid any other way. He's talking about the foundation of the, of the whole essence of what church is to be and how they are to deal with one another within the church. And so let's read verse 10 again. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each person be careful how he builds upon this foundation. He says in verse 11, and this is the verse I wanted you to see, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling them, and Peter is telling us, that our religion is worthless without Christ. Nothing can be laid, nothing can be built without Him. So now, back to Acts chapter 4. Look again at verse 10 as we review. Peter's argument reached a climax when he said that it was not him, it was not John who healed this man who was born lame. He says, on the contrary, they wanted to know, how did you heal this guy? What did you do? How was this done? He says, it was done in the name of Jesus Christ and he alone. Jesus had physically healed this crippled man. And now Peter is saying, this same Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah that was to come to us, wants to heal you spiritually. 
as well. Now, Peter did not compromise or soft-pedal his message. Contrary, you know, his audience there was hardcore religious leaders. He knew what they believed. He knew what they thought. And contrary to what the Jews taught or thought about their religious birthrights, being children of Abraham. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, last night I kept on saying Matthew 3.19 over and over again. There is no Matthew 3.19. Matthew 3.9, John the Baptist, who, now I don't know this for certain, but here's my, my guess. Both Peter and John the Baptist were pretty aggressive guys. That's my guess. For sure, I believe John the Baptist was. I believe Peter was too. But I don't, I don't think, I can't conceive in my mind that Peter would give a message wanting to hurt anyone. I know I don't. I, and my personality is I'd rather be liked than disliked. I mean, I'll tell it to you straight. I'd, I want to be liked. Um, and so for me to preach a message to say, you're a sinner. It's not easy. It's not something that's, that's innate within me. I would rather pat people on the back and say, oh, no, you're okay, don't worry, you're fine. Now, that's why I'm not a great counselor, by the way. I'm a good crisis counselor, but you get me going a few days and I start to feel sorry for everybody and I say, oh, just go ahead. No, it's okay. It's, 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 you know, I do. I'm, I'm not the great, best counselor. But John the Baptist, now, he's another case, I believe. When he saw those guys coming to him, he said, Who warned you, you brood of vipers? <laughs> Man, I mean, come on. Give them some slack. They're coming to be baptized. But he said this about their birthright in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. He says, You think, I'm paraphrasing this. He says, You think because you're children of Abraham, you're okay? He said, I say to you that God can, from these stones, raise up children. And what he was saying is the same thing that Peter is saying. Peter is trying to get it through the person's minds, through the person's hearts, that it's not your birthright, it's not your birthright to be right before God. It must be a decision you make, and he is narrowing it down to just Jesus Christ. And so he is saying to them lovingly that their birthright has, does them no right, no good. He says, simply put, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. There is salvation nowhere else but Jesus. Now that's a, quite a statement. Quite a statement. For some people, folks, that seems very narrow. I understand that feeling. It preaches an exclusive, narrow path in the midst of this time in which we live where it's very inclusive, very broad. Uh, we live in a time where it, it appears that, that people are trying to break down the, the morals and, and really we should live and do as we feel. Feel. As long as it's not hurting anyone, what does it matter? Just live as you wish. What you do in the privacy of your own life 
that's fine. And along comes us as Christians who say, no, that's not fine. And because of that, Christians are often accused of being very narrow-minded, even intolerant of other religions and other people and, and other ways to God. I've had some of my dearest friends say to me, boy, you, you're really narrow-minded. You mean to say in this great big universe in which we live, there's only one way to God? Come on. What about all those other religions? And people who want to be politically correct say, and I might add, believe that there are many ways, many paths that lead to the mountaintop experience of spirituality, of religious enlightenment. But are there many ways? And so we hear, how do you dare? How do you dare? How do you dare to tell me that there's only one way to God? Who do you think you are? And why do you insist that your, your way is the only way? Well, in reality, the Bible teaches there are a couple of ways couple of different paths. They even have a name. Our Lord gave a name to them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I know this is a long introduction. Forgive me. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 and I will pray with you in a moment. On the Sermon on the Mount, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, makes a statement about different ways to God. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. But he says in verse 14, For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Last night, I love Saturday. I'll tell you up front. I, I, I long for church on Saturday. I love it. For those of you that, that... And I love church on Sunday. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. But there's something unique about last night. Every time, it, it, there's, a, there's a feeling of casualness. There's, a, there's an excitement almost in the air. I, I can't tell you exactly what it is. Last night, I preached this very same message. I have not asked permission to do this, so I won't say female, male, I won't say. Someone came to me. Young person. All my life, they said, I've been wrestling through this whole idea of faith. Why, why, is, why are you guys? He almost, oh, the person almost said, why are you guys so uh, narrow-minded? He they looked at me and said, this is exactly what I've been wanting to hear. You see, I've always believed that people want to hear that two and two is four. And you don't stutter when you tell them it's four. It's not three and a half and it's not four and a quarter. Two and two is four. I've always believed that people, adults, want to hear the truth. 
and then they'll deal with the truth. But they want to at least know what is the truth. This person asked me if they could meet with me. Would like to know more about our faith. Wants to start coming to this church on a regular basis. Because this person said, I've been to a lot of churches and I've always felt like it's, it doesn't matter. Just go. You're fine. You come to church. You, you must have a heart for God. Go. You're fine. He, the person said to me, the first person that nailed me, you in essence were saying, I'm not fine. And I needed to hear that. You see, it really touched my heart last night. I can't tell you. You see, everyone, regardless of our belief, whether you be religious or non-religious, whether you be an atheist or a saint, every single one of us is on a path. We're on one way or the other, according to the Bible. And what Peter was saying and what Jesus was saying to the religious leaders of their day, he said, you're blind. Remember? He said, you're blind people leading blind people. You've got to come to the light. And so what Peter is saying to these religious, dear religious people there, that everyone who follows you, he is saying, is on the broad road that has not Christ in it that leads to destruction or hell. So what Peter does, he tells them of their sin, and then he says, you have hope. It's not over. There is salvation. It's in no one else, though. That's narrow. There's no other name. That's very narrow. By which you must be saved. That's as narrow as it gets. And so with that in mind, what anyone here will do with that information, if you're a believer, it ought to be, it ought to be a sigh of, of wonderful relief. If you're investigating, it ought to at least give you for once information about Jesus and then what you do with him, that's up to you. There's one thing beautiful about our faith. No one, no one can make you come to Christ and no one, no one can stop you. The choice is an individual choice. It's, it's, not, <clears throat> it's, <clears throat> it's not passed on because of a birthright. Because your parents were wonderful Christians don't mean that you are. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that your parents are. All of us have to make a decision on our own to follow Christ or not. No one can make it for you. No one can live out your faith but you and you alone. It's personal. It's personal to every single one of us. For you younger people, it's as personal to you as it is to an old guy like me. We all have to choose. We all have to decide what are we going to do with this information that we receive from the Bible. Are we going to live for it? Which finally 
gets me to the start of this message. I'll get through in time, I promise. But you see, what they're trying to do is we're going to see when we read in a moment. Is they're trying, they're going to try to intimidate the apostles and those that are following Jesus Christ from being so in exclusive, of being so narrow-minded. Open up your mind. Open up your, your, yourself to God. There's, there's many ways. That's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell itself, folks. Because our Lord himself says, there is only one way, and he's it. Let's read Acts chapter 4. Look at the courage of these people. Verse 13. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Yet they were marveling, and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these guys, these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. When they had summoned them back, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we've heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because... The people were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Father, we look at these words and we marvel. We, we ask only, Father, that you would open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we might behold the wonders of your word, the wonders of your Son. May we as a church build our rock-solid foundation upon the one and only rock that is your Son, Jesus Christ. May we exalt Him. May we glorify Him. May we do everything that you've asked us to do concerning your Son. May we recognize that nothing that we do, nothing is of any value apart from your Son. And so what we ask, dear Father, is that you would truly open up our hearts and our minds to hear from you and you alone. Move me aside, I beg of you, dear Father. Hide me behind the wonders of what we've just read. Let us try to explain it as best we can so that each of us here might be touched by your heart, not mine. May you move within us, Father. We pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Here's the council's problem. And they've got a major problem, folks. Their problem is they have no grounds against Peter or John. They don't know what to do with these guys. So to punish them would be very risky in light of what the people are saying about them. You see, 
what they did was perform a miracle. Same thing Jesus did over and over and over again. Miracle, miracle, miracle. So as to verify what they are saying. They did the miracle so the people would believe when they said that Jesus Christ is the only way. It verified that they were representatives of God. You and I have this today. This is what verifies us. That's why any church that opens up its doors and doesn't teach the people out of this and just goes haphazardly from one spot to another without being coordinated in what they teach, big mistake. Big mistake. Going against the very orders that our Lord God gave the apostles. Tell the people to be continually devoted to your teaching. And so, their problem is the people have really knit themselves to the apostles. Look at verse 16 and 21 one more time. They ask, what should we do with these men? Because... The fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place is apparent to everyone who lives in Jerusalem. Look what they say. We can't deny it. We can't. We can't go out and say nothing happened. They got the guy, they got the doggone guy standing right beside him, jumping for joy. How are we going to say this didn't happen? What should they have been saying? Does it, does it not boggle your mind that there wasn't one guy in the midst of that council that says, Wait! Wait a minute. Why try to stop them? Let's not see if they're right and follow them. I would hope that I would have been that man. In the midst of a, a people that are going this way and pulling me this way that I would... No, I, I, I can't. I can't go. I've got to keep going. They didn't. And... They said, we can't deny that this happened. Look at verse 21. They threatened them further, but they let them go because they found no base on which to punish them. Here's why they didn't punish them. Because the people, the people were glorifying God. They'd seen what had happened. Look, I'll, I'll show you what, how badly they wanted to beat them up. Look what it says in, in chapter 5. Look at verse 28. We'll get to this when. Who knows? Oh my gosh. Well, look at verse chapter 5, verse 28. They said, look, verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. We're, that takes us back to where we are right now, chapter 4. And behold, you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, talking about Jesus? This man? This man? This man who they knew rose from the dead, who promised that he would? This man? And so Peter and the apostles said in verse 29, we must obey God rather than you. And so what do they do? They went in verse 40. If you look at verse 40, here's what the, the religious leaders did. They called the apostles in, verse 40, and they flogged them. They beat them up. And ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. And as I said to you last week, the next verse said, they, they went away, the apostles went away rejoicing that they'd just gotten beaten up, worthy to, be, worthy to suffer shame for the cause of Christ. Do you feel that way in your life? Worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ? 
the reality of a risen Lord and Savior had spread through the whole city. They, by their own admission, could not deny the miracle, nor could they deny that Jesus truly rose from the dead, truly is the Messiah. But sadly, this is, the, this, is, this is what boggles my mind. Even though they couldn't deny the miracle or the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they were not willing to accept him either. They literally became a living illustration of what the Lord said in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. If you want to turn there, you can see, look, it says, Jesus said, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and won't come to the light for fear that their deeds would be exposed. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul writes, the God of this world has blinded has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they might not see the light. Such is the sin, the quandary, if you would, of blindness. These gentlemen knew the truth, yet they refused to accept it. Just as they had rejected the truth of a risen Savior. Look with me, please, Matthew chapter 28. Hold your place here in Acts. Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. Thanks, Whit. Matthew chapter 28. Here's the, uh, the evilness, the wickedness of sin and that permeated through the religious leaders. What was their motive? Well, we looked before in the book of Romans it said, if we, we continue letting him go on like this, we're going to lose both our place and our authority. In other words, they loved the fact that they had authority over people. They loved the fact that they had a place within the community, that they were looked upon as someone special. They traded that in. They traded that in. Or should, I should say they traded in our Savior for their positions. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, while they were on their way, talking about the guards who were guarding the tomb where Jesus Christ uh, came out of the tomb alive, When they were on their way, some of the guards came to the city and they reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they, they meaning the uh, religious leaders, had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said in verse 13, here's what you're to say. His disciples came by night, stole them away while we were asleep. And, verse 14, if this should come to the governor's ears, We'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. You know what they're saying? Keep you out of trouble? You know what the guards, what the law of that land was for a guard? If you and I were given the responsibility to to guard someone and that person's penalty was death, if that person escaped and we didn't didn't, uh, uh, stop them, then his penalty would fall upon us as a guard. Tough job also made them very, very faithful not to sleep on the job so that no one would get away because if they did, they were gone. And so the chief priests and the elders said, look, look at verse 14 again. See the devious, the evilness of it. If this should come to the governor's ears, 
Let me, let me add, like when I read it myself, when I'm going through the Bible, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We got you covered. We'll win them over. We'll keep you out of trouble. Sadly, verse 15, and I don't know how sadly, I don't know. Those guys probably weren't making much of money. They took the money, and they did as been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. It's true to this day. People believe that that the disciples came in and stole Jesus Christ away, that he didn't really rise from the dead. So what has taken place, uh, back please, to Acts. So what has taken place within this council is their worst nightmare. I mean, they had just executed Jesus Christ for making all these claims to be the Messiah. Now, now, after they got rid of him and they probably went, now things will come back to normal. No, 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 now... They got his followers going everywhere with irrefutable proof saying that he had risen from the dead and they're doing miracles to confirm that they are his representatives on earth. His representatives of the truth and his representative of the word. And so to stop this incrimination against themselves that they had executed the Messiah, they decided to bully the the apostles. Commanded them, don't speak, don't teach in his name. As it said in verse 18, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, ironically, the early believers were commanded not to speak about Jesus Christ, while today, in too many churches here and there across the United States of America, too many have to be begged to even say they're a believer. But Peter and John did not hesitate. Immediately they said, no, we can't obey that. We cannot not speak anymore. We cannot not teach in his name. They simply asked the leadership, the religious leadership, in verse 19, if it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, You've got to judge. Because, verse 20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have just seen and what we have just heard. And this placed the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, on a very horns of dilemma. They didn't want the apostles to continue to speak in his name, but with all the people listening to all of this, they could hardly tell them to obey men rather than to obey God. Now it's clear... Biblically, the Bible tells that you and I are taught to be in obedience to our government. And that's when I said we were going to uh, talk about First Peter, but I'll let you look at it later. But it says, just be uh, under those who are over you. But whenever God's commands conflict with the government, then we must, as believers, obey our Lord rather than following after what mankind tells us to do. Remember the actions of the Hebrew midwives. Turn with me, please, to Exodus. Genesis, Exodus, chapter 1. You talk about courageous ladies. The Hebrew midwives, they helped helped women who were pregnant give uh, birth to their children. And the king of Egypt wanted all of the firstborn to be killed, all the firstborn sons. 
So in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1, it says, The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphra and the other named Puah. And he said to them in verse 16, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then put that son to death. If it's a daughter, let her live. But it says, verse 17, the midwives feared God. Let me repeat that. The midwives feared God. If I were reading this by myself, it would be more than the king himself. And so they feared God and they didn't do as the king had commanded them. They let the boys live. Acts 4.19, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to man rather than to God, you be the judge. You be the judge. But as Peter and John says, we must obey God rather than man. So they released, back to Acts chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. So they released the apostles. But it was only because they feared the people. More than doing what was right, they're not releasing them because it's the right thing to do. They're releasing them because they feared the people. The healing of that man for 40 years who was lame from his birth was undeniable and more powerful than they could imagine. The fact that the apostles stood strong in the face of severe persecution gave their message even more credibility, folks. Now let me get practical with you and me. When we make a daily decision to do what is right before God, when we stand up boldly for what is right, Against, in some cases, maybe hostility. Maybe not. Just the fact that we need to do what is right in this situation. Nobody's there. Nobody can see what is the right thing to do. When we stand up and do what is right, our commitment to Christ grows deeper. If we do it in a crowd, then people will take notice. They'll take a closer look at our lives. And when the time is right for the Lord, they'll listen more closely to our message. That happened last night with a young person here. I was doing ministry with the Los Angeles Rams. It's a professional football team. I don't know if some of you follow sports. They're really tough guys. They're very, very tough guys. No nonsense. Tough, tough, tough men. They play uh, a sport that's, that's truly violent. You know, some say... It's not contact. They, they say, football players say dancing contact. Football is violent. It is. I've been on the sidelines and watched it. And it, I realized one thing for certain. I could have never been a football player. Not to that level. Those guys are tough. I used to do a Bible study. And I'd go there and I'd, I'd be with the team a lot. There was one guy that uh, was big, strong man. Big, strong man. Married to a beautiful little girl. His wife was about half his size. When the guys used to go out after practice, they'd say, come on, let's go out and have a beer. Everybody liked this guy. And they'd say, come on, let's go out and have a beer. Let's have a drink. Let's go do something. Let's go relax a little bit. He said, no, I've got to go home with my wife. And boy, did they used to tease him. Oh, did they tease him. Unmercifully. And I used to hear it. Oh, you always got to run home. Oh, go, go run home to your wife. We're going to go out and have fun with the guys, but you got to run home to your wife. I saw this happen personally. A couple of those guys had trouble with their wives, trouble with their marriage. 
You know the first person they came to? What me? They knew I was a chaplain on a team. What me? They went to this guy. And they asked him, what have you done to keep your marriage so strong? And instead of telling them, oh, you used to teach me, run home to my wife, run home to my wife, he said, I've committed my life to Jesus Christ. It's changed my life. They teased him. But he did, he did what was right. Made his marriage strong. Man, there's nothing greater in your life than to make your marriage strong. It's the greatest privilege you have. It's the greatest joy you'll ever have. You'll never, you don't know if you're sitting beside your wife right now, you have no idea how much love she has for you if you'll just treat her right. And by right means if you'll just treat her the way she wants to be treated. And you might say to me, if you're a man in private, you don't know what you just asked. You don't know my wife. And I will say to you, you bought that farm. Take, take care of it. Should have looked more deeply before you jumped. But now that you're there, take care of it. Let me say one thing. I don't care how... Um, what's the word I'm trying to think? How high maintenance she might be. The more you love her, the more she'll love you back. I say... The more you love the Lord, the more He'll love you back. I say, the more you and I are committed to do what is right, in spite of this world in which we live, the more the Lord will pour His life, His love out upon you. And so what we learn from these dear men is that no matter what, we are not to give heed to what mankind says. We're living in a society that tells us you can do this, that, and the other, and don't worry. And we read a Bible that says, if you do this, that, and the other, and it's against my will, you better worry. We need to be obedient to our Lord. If you will, He will love you so much. Dear Father, Thank you for your love for us. Um, thank you for the fact that even while we were yet sinners, you still chose to die for us and love us. Now, Father, as human beings, may we, by our own will and our own accord, choose to live for you, to do what is right in your eyes rather than in the eyes of the world. I thank you for the privilege of... Uh, being with these people whom I love. I love these people so much, Father. Thank you for each one. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Before you leave, I, I don't want to talk long about this, but, oh, never mind. I'll tell you next week. I promise I will. Oh, let me tell you. It's, 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 it'll sound, uh, the reason I kind of hesitated, it'll sound bragging. My son had to make a decision in his business. He said he just hired someone that asked him to, to not tell the truth because uh, of whatever the circumstances were. And he called me up right away. He said, Dad, what would you do? What do you think is the right thing to do? And I said, well, I'd ask that man to go back to the persons he's asked you to, to not tell the truth to and ask him to tell the truth. It's, it'll benefit him. Tell him that. He said, he just won't do it. I said, then you have to go to him and tell him, no matter what, you'll tell the truth. He said he did. He called me later and he said, thanks, Dad. 
And it's kind of self-serving, I tell you this story, but you know, it's, it amazing me. It, it reminds me of this. No matter the cost, you got to tell the truth. By the way, when, John Mark, when my son told the truth, people he told the truth to end up not liking him, saying bad things about him. I also told him that might happen, because I've experienced that myself. That'll happen. It's self-serving. I, I shouldn't have told you that story so much. It just reminded me, though, of where we are. You can stand for the truth. You can. But also expect to have ramifications. Um, that'll happen. I love you so much. I love you so much. Thank you.